Father in heaven, we thank you again, Lord, that we can start our day together in this family worship, focusing our attention upon you. Lord, as we continue to look at warfare around us, most specifically this morning in the life of Jesus, may he be our pattern, Lord. May we look to him. Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and to take the words that are spoken and apply them in our lives. Thank you, Father. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have seen in our study so far that as God's people, we are not civilians. We are soldiers. As soldiers in God's army, we must be properly clothed for protection with the armor of God. We must also be properly equipped with the weapons of spiritual warfare. And so far we have looked, uh, we've looked at the two weapons that God gives to us, the sword of the Spirit and the gift of prayer. And as we look at these two, as we looked at these two things, we saw that it is imperative for us to spend time with God in Bible study, to spend time with God in prayer. And this morning, I want to look at how this plays out in the life of Jesus in the last 48 hours of his life. We're going to take the next three days to look at that portion of Scripture because I believe it is rich with meaning and advice in the war that we are fighting. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4. As soldiers in an army, we need a good general to follow. As soldiers in the army of Prince Emmanuel, we need a good general to follow. And the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 14, speaking of the 144,000, it says, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins, meaning they are spiritually pure. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. God's people in the last days, in the time of spiritual warfare, when the dragon is wroth with the woman and goes to make war with the remnant of her seed, they will be found following the Lamb wherever He goes. Why? Because the Bible tells us in Revelation 17 and verse 14 that the Lamb shall overcome. They shall make war with the Lamb, but those who follow the Lamb will be victorious and will overcome because the Lamb is a conquering general. As soldiers in God's army, we need a good general to follow, and God has given us a wonderful general in following Jesus, the Lamb of God. Review and Herald, April 12, 1898, says this, We need not wait till we are translated to follow Christ. 
God's people may do this here below. We shall follow the Lamb of God in the courts above only if we follow Him here. Amen? Now, here's the interesting thing to me. Those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes will follow the Lamb not just in the times of peace and prosperity. Not when the water is gushing out of the rock and there's manna to be found on the ground. Those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes will follow the Lamb both in the times of peace and prosperity and also in the times of adversity. Because the Lamb is their only hope of success in this battle. We are told that we will only follow the Lamb in the courts of heaven above if we become accustomed to following Him here below. All those who follow Him there will first have followed Him here. And, we will go, and as we uh, study together this morning, we're going to look at the last, as I said, the last 48 hours of the life of Christ. And as we look at this, we must count the cost. Because if this is what has happened to Jesus, we cannot expect anything different to his followers. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. We will spend most of our time here in our study together this morning. Matthew chapter 26 Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, and I didn't have time to go into this in our study, but you might be interested in doing this study on your own. Just doing a quick survey through the Gospel of Matthew, you will find that there are about five times that Jesus warned the disciples about this time of spiritual warfare that was, about to take, that was going to take place at the end of Jesus' life. It was a spiritual war that Jesus intended to prepare his disciples for. I briefly touched on it in the tail part of one of my presentations where Jesus repeatedly warned the disciples about his uh, betrayal, his death, his crucifixion, and that with that he promised them every single time that he would rise again. And we looked at yesterday how imperative it is for us to cling to the promises of God. But the disciples, unfortunately, had their own fabricated idea of theology. That Jesus was going to set up his earthly kingdom and they were busy trying to jockey for the right position on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. And because of that, when the time of war came in the Garden of Gethsemane, They were found sleeping. Title of our message this morning, War in a Garden. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31 and 32, the Bible says this. Then saith Jesus unto them, to his disciples, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But... Listen to the promise. After I am risen again. Amen. After I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Jesus gave them a promise. I will rise again. And not only will I rise again, I will still be your leader. Thank 
However, we find in Luke's account, you can write this in your notes, Luke 22 and verse 24, that as Jesus and the disciples left the upper room, Jesus had finally warned them. He gave them this final warning. I will be betrayed. I will be crucified. I will rise again. Yet we find that as Jesus and the disciples are making their way from the upper room to the garden of Gethsemane for this war that was about to take place. What do you suppose they were talking about? Well, look at my resume. Look at how many people I've won to Christ. Look at how close I am to Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done for me. Look at how much time I've spent together. They were busy arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest. They are hours away from the greatest disappointment in their life. Jesus has spent time and time again in his uh, training and uh, discipleship of his disciples trying to prepare them for this war. But they were self-consumed with their own accomplishments and desire for worldly gain. And we find them walking that road to the Garden of Gethsemane with pride-filled words in their mouth about who should be the greatest. Brothers and sisters, we are treading the path to the Garden of Gethsemane. The hours are just before us. Yes, we are in spiritual warfare every day. But according to Bible prophecy, the war is about to intensify. We are treading the path toward the Garden of Gethsemane. What are your thoughts being filled with? Are your thoughts filled with worldly gain and worldly position, and worldly prosperity, and all of the things that the world has to offer? Or is your mind being filled with the advice from God and His Word that is to prepare you for that intensified battle that is just before us? In my humble opinion, the stakes are much higher now than they were back then. Of course, the disciples went into the Garden of Gethsemane unconverted. After Jesus rose from the dead, they experienced a conversion experience. Praise the Lord for that. But brothers and sisters, we're not going to have that luxury at the end days. Now is the time for us to experience a heart transformation, a conversion experience that will prepare us to be successful, to not deny our Lord in that hour of war, but to stand next to him no matter what might happen. Matthew continues in verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto the place called Gethsemane. And he said unto his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here. And watch with me. And he went a little further and he fell on his face praying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came unto his disciples and he findeth them 
asleep. And he saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for they were, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and he went again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Christ feared that in his human nature he would not be able to endure the attack of Satan. And so because of that, where do we find him? We find him in the attitude of prayer. Jesus went to the place where he oft retreated to spend time with his heavenly father. This dark cloud was descending upon him as he was about to be eclipsed from his relationship with his father. He was about to be separated as the sins of the world were being placed upon him. As this spiritual battle was about to intensify, we find Jesus in the garden praying. Approximately between the hours of nine o'clock and midnight, just hours before, about 24 hours before Jesus would be crucified, Jesus invites his most trusted friends, his disciples, these 12 men that he had spent three and a half years with to enter into this prayer time with him. They noticed, if you read from the book Desire of Ages, that something was different in Jesus' mind. His demeanor had changed as he walked into the garden, as he, she says, stumbled into the garden. With his heart heavy with the sins of the world, he appeals to his disciples Many times to enter into this time of prayer, he tells Peter, James, and John, watch that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Brothers and sisters, I know that everybody here this morning does not want to deny their Lord. That's why you're here. Peter did not want to deny his Lord. He said, Jesus, I will go to death with you. Yet when, this, when the war intensified and began to squeeze him, what do we find him doing? I don't know that man. And that should stand as a warning to the lukewarm Seventh-day Adventists that when the time of battle intensifies, if we don't have that warm, hot burning relationship with Jesus that has grown out of Bible study and prayer, you will follow in Peter's footsteps. And I fear that the outcome may not be the same for you as it was for him. Signs of the Time, December 2, 1897. We find these very interesting words. She describes the humanity of Jesus here. At the end of an hour, Jesus, feeling the need for 
human sympathy, rose from the ground and staggered to the place where he had left his three disciples. He longed to see them. His human nature yearned for human sympathy. He longed to hear from them words that would bring him some relief in his suffering. But he was disappointed. They did not bring to him the help he craved. Instead, he findeth them asleep. What if Jesus had rested his spiritual experience upon the encouragement that he received from other people? You know, too often I think we depend upon what other people think about us. We depend upon the words of encouragement from the church leaders. And we become offended when it doesn't happen or when they give us words of reproof. I am encouraged as I read the statement that Jesus did not depend upon his disciples for his spiritual experience. And from that I learned the lesson That as this war intensifies, as we get closer to the second coming of Jesus, I must have a relationship with God with which I can stand on my own. The Bible tells us, they of your own household shall become your worst enemies. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that relationship has only grown through Bible study and prayer. I might sound like a broken record. You'll have to forgive me for that. But when you leave camp meeting, you will know and you will remember those things. Because of self-confidence, we find the disciples sleeping in the hour when they should have been praying. And Ellen White tells us that had they been praying during that time, Satan would not have been able to triumph over them. Simple thing. Simple thing. If they had been praying when Jesus was praying, Satan would not have gained the mastery over them. There are so many lessons that we can learn from those last two days in the life of Christ. And this is the reason why Ellen White tells us that we should spend a thoughtful hour each day in the contemplation of the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. Why? Because what we find is we find a parallel between the war that Jesus fought in those last 48 hours and the war that we are fighting and are going to fight as we get closer to the second coming. And as we look at Jesus in those last 48 hours of his life, we will there find a blueprint and encouragement, advice, and instruction that will help us to be successful as the war continues to intensify in our spiritual lives. We should saturate our minds with this portion of Scripture because there we will find the encouragement that we need to be successful when we are attacked by the enemy and every earthly support is removed. Testimonies, volume 2, page 205 says this. By these sleeping disciples is represented a sleeping church. What were the disciples supposed to be doing? What did they do instead? What do they represent? A sleeping church. And the sleeping church should be doing what? Instead of? By these sleeping disciples is represented a sleeping church. 
When the day of God's visitation is nigh, listen to this, it is time in the, it is a time of clouds and thick darkness when to be found asleep is most perilous. We need to pray that God will wake us up from our spiritual stupor. To allow events to be triggered in our lives that will wake us up, even if those events are uncomfortable. If the disciples, or the sleeping disciples, if the sleeping disciples represent a sleeping church, what does Jesus represent? A church that is awake, tuned in to what's going on, and praying. Advancing on their knees. Right. So, when we look at the story, the last 48 hours of the life of Christ, what we see is we see, we see two things par- that are playing out. We have the disciples and their choice to sleep in the most perilous time of their life, and we see how that plays out. We see Jesus who decides to pray and to, and, and to uh, come to his Father and to unburden his heart in his prayer time with his Father. And we see how that plays out as the war continues to intensify. And brothers and sisters, I, it doesn't take much reading of the story for me to come to the conclusion that I want to follow the example of Jesus and not the disciples. By the sleeping disciples is represented a sleeping church. May God help us wake up. Great Controversy, page 507, says this. Why are the soldiers of Christ so sleepy and indifferent? Is a sleeping soldier a good thing? You know what they did when soldiers slept during the time of the Civil War? It was that bad. They would court-martial them. Why are the soldiers of Christ so sleepy and indifferent? Because... They have so little real connection with Christ because they are so destitute of His Spirit. Why are they sleepy? Because they don't have a real connection with Christ. Why do they not have a real connection with Christ? Because they're not spending time with Him. Brothers and sisters, you know this. The only way that a relationship can grow is if you invest time in it. And if we're going to have a real connection with Christ that is going to hold us when all the world and all our earthly supports are pulled out from underneath us, if we're going to have a relationship with Christ that is going to sustain us through the darkest hour of our lives, we know this from the spirit of prophecy, that is going to feel like God himself has turned his back on us. How in the world are we going to stand during that time if we don't have a real connection with God? And that real connection can only happen if we give time to the Lord each morning in Bible study and prayer. You know, I find it interesting. The disciples, as you look at the story playing out, they were busy looking at each other, right? Who is going to be the greatest, right? You've had your accomplishments, I've had my accomplishments, and comparing themselves amongst themselves. And you know, whenever you do that, you always get to a level of complacency. Have you ever done that before where you've compared yourself to other church members in your church? Don't answer that question. Oh, well, 
I know he got that position, but I really should have gotten it. I know that they're doing this, but I've, I've actually can do it much better. Comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. When we do that, we become complacent. And that's what happened to the disciples. They were so busy comparing themselves amongst themselves and bickering about who should be the greatest instead of keeping their eyes on Christ. And when that war intensified, their spiritual lives crumbled. We need to stop, getting our, stop having our eyes focused on one another and what's going on with each other and keep our eyes focused on God. Jesus says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Don't look at each other. Don't look at each other's accomplishments. Keep your eyes focused on me. And if you do so, you will be successful. Who will learn to pray as Jesus prayed? That we might be able to fight as he fought. As the hours of midnight approached, the sound of the mob led by Judas... We're going to get more into this tomorrow. Came to take Jesus away. But it's interesting to me that it is interesting to me that when they find Jesus, they find him calm, put together, ready to meet them. In fact, what does Jesus say as the mob is coming? He says, he is at hand that doth betray me. He knows that he's coming. He knows what is about to take place, and he is ready. Why is he ready? What did he just do? Do you think we need to study that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane a little bit more closer? Now, I'm not going to do it any justice in the time that we have together here this morning, but I'm going to do my best to attempt to break this down for us in a little bit uh, and apply it in our lives a little bit. But before I do that, I want you to notice one thing. As Jesus steps out of the Garden of Gethsemane and begins to go through the six trials that he goes through before his ultimate crucifixion, there were two things that happened in his life. Number one, Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed, crucified, and that he would rise again. How did he know that? Did he have supernatural understanding of the future? He knew it from where? The same place you know it from. Jesus studied the word of God. He spent ample time in those prophecies of Daniel and the Old Testament. And as he studied those, he realized that they were applying to his life and he knew what was going to happen. He was informed because of his study of Bible prophecy. But not only was he informed... But he was prepared. And he was prepared through his prayer time together with his heavenly father. I don't want you to miss this point. Because it's so important. Jesus was able to step out of the garden of Gethsemane. And calmly meet the rabble crowd. Who dragged him from one farce of a trial to another. He was able to do that because of Bible study and prayer. It's not going to be any different for us as the time intensifies and the war gets, uh, the heats up. 
The only thing that will sustain us during that time is a knowledge of what is going to happen and a preparedness through a relationship together with God. And so we see three things in the prayer of Jesus. Three obvious things, I believe, in his prayer life, in this specific prayer anyways. Again, in verse 39, Matthew chapter 26. The Bible says, and Jesus went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Verse 42, and he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Verse 44, and he left them. And went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Three times he prays, not my will, but thine be done. You've heard this before. But I want to suggest to you this morning that we have not prayed like Jesus prayed until we come to the place where all of our desires are consumed in his desire. That our will is so perfectly in line with his will, that is when prayer starts to take off. Not my will, but thine be done. I find it interesting that in this prayer that Jesus prayed, what did he pray for? He prayed that the cup might be what? Removed. He let the Father know what his human desire was. He did not want to drink that bitter cup. What what was the Father's will? The Father's will was for him to drink that cup. I find that interesting that Jesus' request was different than what the Father's will was for him. Yet Jesus was willing to submit to the Father's will and do the thing that humanly he did not want to do. Has God ever asked you to do something that you don't want to do? When that nominating committee time rolls around, And the committee who has spent time in prayer asking God to direct them approach you to appoint you in a position of leadership in the church and you feel uncomfortable. "Mm, I can't do that. Maybe God is asking you to do something that you don't want to do because he's about to do something amazing in your life. Was God about to do something amazing in the life of Jesus? He was about to redeem the entire world through his son's life. Sometimes God asks you to do things that are uncomfortable. And brothers and sisters, we need to step out in faith, trusting that he will enable us to do what we don't want to do. Not my will, Jesus says, but thine be done. Unless we begin our prayers in this way, we have not begun to pray as Jesus prayed. Sometimes we come to our prayer life with our preconceived ideas. This is what we want. And somehow we think that if we pray hard enough that we can manipulate God to do what we want instead of what he wants. Lord have mercy. I have a firm conviction that when we genuinely want the will of God in our lives, the Lord will give us his will. And when that happens, we are putting ourselves in line For God to bless us in a way that we have never experienced. 
We are putting ourselves in a position where our relationship with God will intensify and deepen that this relationship that we are developing that will sustain us through that hour of difficulty will grow. Not my will, but thine be done. That's the first quick characteristic that we see in the life of Jesus and in his prayer here in the garden, this wartime prayer. But that's something that we all already knew. Let me share with you something that might be a little bit newer. Verse 36, the Bible says this. Then cometh Jesus with them unto the place called Gethsemane, and he saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here, will I go yonder and, or go and pray yonder. I find it very interesting That as we look at the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in his prayer life, we find nobody coming up to him and putting his arm around him and saying, I'm praying for you, brother. Isn't it encouraging when somebody does that? Did Jesus want that? Sure he did. We just read he went back to his disciples hoping to hear some words of comfort, but instead he found his disciples were sleeping. There was nobody to come up to Jesus and put their arm around him and say, I'm praying for you right now. Now listen, the disciples had seen the visage of Jesus change. They knew that there was something going on here. There was a, a different atmosphere or, 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 or uh, attitude that Jesus had as he was coming into this garden where he had prayed many times. They knew that there was something different, but yet there was nobody to come to Jesus and say, I'm praying for you at this time. Jesus did not depend upon other people's support to support him spiritually in his war. He he depended upon his relationship with God alone to support him in that dark hour. Jesus knew that life is war and that prayer was needed. So I ask you the question, is your spiritual life dependent on words of encouragement from others? Do you crave hearing somebody else tell you how much they appreciate you? That what you're doing is a good thing? Brothers and sisters, we have to get to the point where it doesn't matter what other people think. It's time for us to get beyond that. As long as we keep having that attitude, we're going to hold this church back. We have to get to the point where all that matters is what God thinks. And that our will is totally enveloped in his will. That we are in the center of God's will in our lives constantly, day by day. That we are marching together with God. That even if other people think that we are crazy, it doesn't matter what they think. We're going to do it anyway. Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 122, says this. There are persons in the church who are not converted. I pray that you're not one of them. And who will not unite in earnest prevailing prayer. We must enter upon the work 
What's the next word? How? Individually. We must pray more and talk less. When you see something in the church that needs to be fixed, don't talk about it. Go pray about it. When you see a problem in your brother or sister's life, don't talk to other people about it. Go pray about it. There's a spiritual war that's being fought in their lives just as much as there's a spiritual war being fought in your life. Don't throw darts at them. Don't pull them down by gossiping about them. Don't nitpick and, and try to pull them apart and discourage them in what God is calling them to do. Don't have friendly fire in your churches. Casualties are enough just from the enemy. Don't add to that with friendly fire. Pray more. Talk less. Uplift your fellow soldier who is fighting in war. Uplift him or her in prayer that God would sustain them and guide them and direct them in their spiritual walk together with him. We must enter in upon this work. How? Individually. Now listen. I think it's great for us to come together in prayer. In fact, I think as a church, we don't pray together enough. Prayer times are often, or uh, prayer meeting times are often spent reading a book instead of praying. And oftentimes wonder why we call it prayer meeting. It's good for God's people to come together and pray. But brothers and sisters, what really is going to move the engine of the church is when God's people are in their prayer closets praying individually. We must enter upon the work individually, not depending upon the encouragement from others. Now listen to me carefully. I want you to be an encouragement. The Lord wants you to be an encouragement. The Lord wants you to look for ways to speak words of encouragement, to not be the sleepy disciple, but the praying disciple who could have been an encouragement to our Savior in, one of the, in the darkest hour of his life. What an opportunity the disciples missed. Peter, James, and John, they could have been praying for Jesus. And as Jesus came back, he could have heard those sweet words coming back from those three trusted and loved disciples as they were praying for Jesus during that dark hour. What an encouragement that would have been for him. But I praise the Lord that our salvation was not dependent upon their prayers. I want you to be an encouragement. The Bible wants you to be an encouragement. God wants you to be an encouragement. Look for ways to be an encouragement. But don't base your spiritual experience off of the words of encouragement from others. Luke chapter 22. Go there with me if you would. Verse 44. First characteristic of Jesus' prayer is that he was surrendered to the will of the Father. Second characteristic is that he entered upon an individual prayer. Luke chapter 22 and verse 44, the Bible says this, And being in agony, he prayed, how? More earnestly. How did he pray? More earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Interesting that Dr. Luke catches this little detail. 
which, by the way, is not a little detail. <clears throat> it's an important detail. It's a rare condition, and I'm not a medical person, but it's a rare condition called hematidrosis. When the small capillary blood vessels in the sweat glands rupture, and the, and the sweat that is coming out is mixed with blood. And it is said that, from a medical standpoint, that this condition happens only when somebody is put under severe mental contemplation. He prayed the more earnestly. And not only that, but it is reflected physiologically in his life. That the capillaries in his blood vessels, or in his sweat glands, ruptured, and he began to sweat great drops of blood. I don't know about you, but I have never had a prayer experience like that. It only happens when humans are put under great emotional stress and mental contemplation. The loss of blood is said to be minimal, but it leaves the skin very sensitive. And I want you to keep that in your mind later on when we get down to the trials of Christ. It's quickly apparent that Jesus' prayer in the garden was unlike anything that he had ever prayed before. This was a war that was being fought for the salvation of the world. This was such an intense prayer that Jesus was praying that his body responded to it. And I want this type of prayer life. But I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters, it doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen by having a five or ten minute prayer each morning when you wake up. It doesn't happen quickly. It happens over time as you develop that relationship of dependence upon God for everything. Jesus realized that the only way that he was going to get through this war is if he depended and leaned heavily upon the shoulders of his heavenly father. Early writings, page 269, says this, I saw some with strong faith, agonizing cries, pleading with God. Their countenance were pale and marked with deep anxiety, expressive of their internal struggle. Listen to this. Firmness and great earnestness was expressed in their countenance. Large drops of perspiration fell from their foreheads. This is talking about God's people in the last days as they go through that intensified battle. They will have a similar experience to Jesus. They won't be sweating great drops of blood, but there will be great drops of perspiration that will fall from their face. They will have a similar prayer life that Jesus had, that their bodies will respond in that intense prayer time that they, as they hold on to God, their great general, to see them through that time of war. But it doesn't happen, friends, by just having a prayer here and there. It's time for us to make Prayer and Bible study, the most important things in our life. Your spiritual life depends upon it. And you will get to heaven only as you engage in those things. Growing your relationship with Jesus. I think that one of the reasons why the disciples were not successful in the Garden of Gethsemane is because prior to this, they had not developed the practice of following Jesus' example of spending great nights together in prayer with their Heavenly Father. 
They had not developed the skill of spending time with him in prayer. And so when that hour of intense battle came, they were overcome with drowsiness and went to sleep. If I might use the language of the educational system, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find Jesus had his Ph.D. in prayer. And it wasn't something that just happened like this. It was something that developed over time. So I ask you this morning, where are you in your prayer experience? Where are you in your prayer education? Are you still in kindergarten? Are you in grade school? Are you in high school? Are you in college? In college? Are you working on your master's degree, your PhD? Where are you in your prayer education? As Elder Fazee once said it. Friends, when this time of battle intensifies, I pray that we will not be kindergartners in prayer. The good news this morning is this. God can give us this experience rapidly if we choose to depend upon him and ask him to give it to us. Where are you in your prayer education? Gospel Workers, page 254, I leave this with you in closing. Prayer, you've read this before. Prayer is the breadth of the soul. The point has been well made over and over again by many preachers that are much more eloquent than I am, that without breadth, there is no life. If prayer is the breadth of the soul, and I am to survive spiritually, what must I be doing? It is the secret of spiritual power. What is it? It's the secret of spiritual power. No other means of grace can be substituted and the health of the soul preserved. Prayer brings the heart into immediate contact with the wellspring of life and strengthens the sinew and the muscles of the religious experience. Listen to this. Neglect the exercise of prayer or engage in prayer spasmodically now and then as seems convenient and you lose your hold on God. The spiritual faculties lose their vitality. The religious experience lacks health and vigor. Let me summarize the statement. Defeat happens. Defeat happens. We need to come to Jesus as the disciples did in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. As they heard Jesus praying... They came to him with the request, Lord, teach us to pray. Their hearts were so moved with the power of Jesus' prayer as he was praying to his father there in Luke chapter 11. They wanted that same experience. And incidentally, the disciples were ordained ministers at that time. Lord, teach us to pray. Is that your desire this morning? Brothers and sisters, I can't stress this enough. There is a war that is being fought. We cannot afford to neglect these two spiritual disciplines of Bible study and prayer. May God make us mighty in His Word. And may God make us thick in our prayer lives.
together with our Heavenly Father. That even if all earthly support is cut out from underneath us, we would never even think for a moment of letting go of our Father's hand. Let us pray. Father in heaven, words are feeble. It is so difficult for us to fully be able to understand what Jesus went through in the garden. Because of that, Lord, we depend upon your Holy Spirit to impress upon our hearts more and more about that experience. Father, as we look at what happened to the disciples and what happened to Jesus, I pray that we would be found with the 144,000 following the Lamb wherever He goes. That we would not be distracted by the shiny things of this world, but that we would be consumed with one thing, and that is our Savior. Father, we as the disciples pray this morning, Lord, teach us to pray. Help us, Father, to be mighty in the Word and thick with You in our prayer lives. May You guide us as we go from this place of worship to meet whatever the day may bring to us. May we do it together with You. Thank You, Father. For we ask it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.